Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 13th of June 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today. Well, I'm delighted to be joined in the uh, uh, the studio by our very own Alex Thompson. We've also got our very own Katie Jo Murfin, and I'm delighted to have David Scott bringing us northern approaches from north of the border. Well, let's kick off with probably some really bad news. Brace yourselves because here he is. Today is the big day. And of course, whatever else is happening in the world, uh, the United Kingdom has seen fit to award an honour to Tony Blair. Alex, I don't know whether, what your immediate comment on this is, but a lot of people very, very unhappy. Well, indeed, because this isn't just any old knighthood, Brian. This is the uh, Order of the Garter. This is, this is uh, a select uh, four and 20, including Her Majesty, putting on uh, special garters at their knees, which uh, in, entitles them to be the, 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 the sovereign's closest consorts. Um, it's, uh, well, consultants, I should say, to avoid uh, double entendre. But this is really, really quite... Uh, quite exclusive. There's a lot of people who would kill for such a, an order of the garter and uh, the Queen has uh, has said that he's on her level of, of, of honour and chivalry. Well, giving this. Uh, they'd kill for the honour. Um, I think they, they have been killing for uh, the yes. honour, particularly in uh, Tony Blair's case. Let's just remind ourselves on the 2nd of June, uh, UK <laughs> column highlighted uh, the, the young Ewan Blair uh, because uh, he, he'd already received a, an award and we said very sarcastically, thanks, Dad, I did it all on my own. Uh, what came out a couple of days ago was that the young Blair and his startup was already worth 1.7 billion. And uh, I find this uh, a totally sickening report. Um, this can only happen, of course, with immense help from people in powerful places. Uh, David, don't know whether you'd like a quick 10 seconds on that, but uh, can the average youngster in the UK get themselves set up in business and in no time at all be worth 1.7 billion? Well, of course, Bill Gates did it, but then his parents were on the board of uh, IBM and put a word in and said maybe IBM would like to take this new startup company under its wing. So, yeah, it does seem to be who you know, not what you know. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's striking how many people at the very top of industry um, are not as self-made as uh, they might advertise. Yes, OK. All right. Thank you for that. Well, let's do a little bit of an, uh, an update on the war in Ukraine, because a lot is, uh, is starting to happen there. And it's Severodonets in the east of the country, which is the critical place. And uh, we have some bizarre reporting from the BBC over the last few days. Uh, just have a look at this one, uh, which uh, uh, we've highlighted with a blue uh, arrow. So the Ukrainians are saying that the Russians now control most of the city, but the situation is under control. So the regional governor, Sergei Hadai, is uh, saying this. And when you showed me this this morning, Brian, I was put in mind of that Napoleonic-era French general who wrote about his left and right flanks having been blown up and he was encircled, but he ended, ended his signal, situation excellent, preparing to advance. Uh, and La Repubblica, if I remember correctly, one of the, certainly one of the Italian mainstream titles reported when there was the last of these encirclements at Azovstal last month, uh, that the Ukrainians didn't surrender. They forced the nasty Russians to capture them to, to show what kind of people the Russians were. So propaganda overdrive there. Indeed. So let's follow it through. Here's some more BBC analysis. 
Uh, the headline, Russia having to resort to old artillery as it runs out of weapons. So this is more of the BBC trying to tell us that, of course, the Russians incompetent and falling apart. Uh, just have a look at this little clip here on the right. It adds that Russia is massing fires with its artillery and air capabilities in an attempt to overwhelm Ukrainian defences. So they're having to resort to old weapon systems. They're failing. They can't do the logistics, but they're massing uh, artillery and air capabilities, not in an attempt to overwhelm the Ukrainian forces. They're actually doing it. Uh, so we've just got a bizarre mismatch in the reporting. And if we bring in another block of text here, um, according to the BBC and the Ministry of Defence UK, without any evidence whatsoever, apparently the Russians are so incompetent they've run out of their modern missiles now and they're having to rake up these older munitions in order to do the job, when the reality must surely be that the Russians have got to the point where they know that the older munitions will do the job for them. Well, they seem to be very uh, capable at using spotters to correct their fire, don't they, Brian? You noticed that this uh, in recent footage that they have two of the older howitzers on the ground. One uh, will, will train shells on a target and the other will be waiting to, to receive an order to, to fire on order from another angle. So that's pretty advanced stuff. And if you've got that, you don't need the latest kit. And of course, the Russians have a huge amount of artillery. And now rather than take casualties themselves, they're using that artillery. So the tragedy is that this war is continuing to run with the support of the West. But some of the reality is now coming to the fore because even Zelensky is now having to talk about casualties. He's saying 10,000 Ukrainian casualties most people say this has got to be a gross underestimate, but at least casualties are now being talked about on the Ukrainian side because we've had virtually 110 days of war with the BBC, for example, not talking about the losses. But this is more of the reality because now we've got arguments between the West and Ukraine. Uh, so Biden, uh, the bad man here, because he said that the Ukrainians didn't take the Americans' warnings of the Russian attack seriously, and the Russians on the uh, sorry, and the Ukrainian on the right coming back and saying, well, it wasn't our fault, Gov, because uh, we were actually asking for help way earlier. So the thing's beginning to fall apart, the, the uh, wheels coming off the wagon. But if we just have a look at how this war has run, We've got a coup fomented by, fermented by the West as Zelensky gets chosen and installed. Ukraine's media is taken over by BBC Media Action. And now you have a propaganda machine that knows no bounds, whether it's lies, misinformation, disinformation, uh, rape, war crimes or rebranding as of. This is absolutely spot on with from you, Brian. I just need to interject to say even people uh, following Ukrainian news in Ukrainian and fairly intelligent people are regurgitating the kind of stuff that finds its way into the British and American press because they're hearing it in Russian sources and in, Ukrainian sources. Sorry. Indeed. So we've added in here, Ukraine courted by the US, UK, EU and NATO with money, weapons, publicity and what I'm describing as diplomatic grooming. Zelensky is puffed up to believe he can take on the Russians with military arms and military support. And again, this is something that the Ukrainians are using as talking points. Just any kind of intelligentsia when they speak to Westerners, especially Brits, they're saying, if only you gave us more weapons, we are certain we could win this war. So why aren't you doing it? And they're getting that from BBC style reframed Ukrainian media. 
Okay, thank you for that. And of course, the Russian special operation starts and Zelensky is effectively unleashed. Uh, where does that go? Well, Ukraine's led to believe the US and West will support Ukraine's war at all costs, where we can see clearly this is not the case. Russia uses its high-tech weapons and destroys most of the Ukrainian Air Force, the strategic communications weapon dumps quickly. So we have been able to see where this war is going for a long time, and it's not looking good for Ukraine. The war intensifies, increasing UK, Ukrainian military and civilian casualties. Ukraine steadily loses key territory, but the West stalls Ukrainian-Russian talks and drives the war on. And where is the end going to be? Well, the end, we are looking at Ukraine destroyed as a nation state. But let's do something nobody else is doing at the moment and talk about the problems of Zelensky. And we say that he's in a rat trap at the moment. How does that work? This is how it goes. We bring in Biden and the US, who were saying fight the Russians to the last Ukrainians. Uh, we'll supply arms, but of course it's Lend-Lease, so that's going to cost money. But we're not going to give too many weapons too fast so we can control the battle. And we're certainly not going to give the Ukrainians long-range missiles to do real damage to Russia. Uh, Boris Johnson, fight the Russians to the last Ukrainian. And uh, we'll give you arms, but uh, just enough to look good in the media, not enough to uh, do the job on the battlefield. And if we bring in the EU, uh, well, they're saying fight the Russians to the last Ukrainian. And uh, they're going to say, trust us, join the EU club. But uh, you're already bankrupt and dependent on the US. The EU can't agree on weapons for Ukraine because we're desperate for the Russian oil. So that leaves Zelensky between a rock and a hard place. He can fight the Russians to the last Ukrainians and apparently the Ukraine will win. Uh, we're losing to win. These are all statements that the Ukrainians have made. We're short of critical ammunition, but winning. We are surrendering to evacuate. That's a, re a reference to Mariupol, where they surrendered but called it evacuation. Uh, we're advancing to retreat. This is a common uh, claim of advancing on the battlefield when in fact they've been retreating. Many of these come from uh, Aristovich, the presidential advisor and spokesman, don't they? He actually uses this language. For, for those just watching casually, they might think you've made this up, but this is what Aristovich has been saying in briefings. Thank you. We're reinforcing with crack untrained militia who are young and old. These are not top troops, but we keep hearing uh, that they're being used. And of course, they want more Brits um, and US and EU mercenaries to volunteer to come to Ukraine to be killed. Because, of course, we are fighting for you in Europe, they say. Indeed. So the rat trap is this. If uh, Zelensky doesn't fight the Russians, he's likely to be disappeared by the US, UK and EU. If he doesn't fight the Russians, he's going to be uh, executed for treason by the Azov Nazis that form a key part of the regime. And then, of course, if Ukraine gets to understand the fact that Zelensky was bought and groomed by the West to run a proxy war, he's likely to be executed by the Ukrainians themselves for treason. Will they deal with the oligarchs above him, though? Well, we don't know. So we just pop this one on screen to emphasize the point that, of course, this is what it's about. It's influence and geopolitics in, in uh, Europe. It is nothing to do with uh, helping the Ukrainian people. David. 
Uh, a very quick summary there to try and get people focused on how this war's really been run. Just a couple of comments from here. Yeah, the, the war was started because the West, NATO, said that the Ukraine would be part of NATO. The decision was already made. It was just a matter of timing. That forced Russia's hand. We're now seeing a, a, a very resilient fight from forces which are no way equal to the Russian forces. So they've been in the field for 110 days and they're still in the field and that's not nothing. But um, the only way out of this for the Ukrainians is going to be a negotiated peace, a negotiated settlement. And the pressure that's been put on them not to negotiate, this is cruel. This is not in their interests. They need to negotiate so they're left with a country at the end of this. Um, and the West need to be promoting this, not promoting war. Yeah, indeed. Well, um, you've, you've actually, sorry, we've got a section now on the cost of the war. So that dovetails in nicely with what you've just said. What have we got here, Alex? We've got far too much to dwell upon. So this will be one of those segments where you have to freeze the screen if you want to see the detail. I will be very summary in what I talk about. First up here is just something a few weeks ago that a viewer spotted, The Guardian, I beg your pardon, yes, it was The Guardian, uh, was re reporting this odd, oddly telling headline, Ukrainians burying civilians in mass graves as Russia advances. Perhaps we want to think about what that actually means and what's being implied there. But on to the cost of the war. Uh, the Minister of Finance, Serhiy Marchenko, has given an interview which has been covered by an English language Ukrainian title called MIND. And he's talking about the three quarters of the entire budget of the country uh, being devoted to the military now, but no panic, no cause for panic, he says. So here in his hoodie type uh, garment is Mr. Marchenko. This is the first uh, highlighted quote by mind in the article. He says that priority one is pensions and military benefits, law enforcement, security and the defense. Then all other expenses, including welfare, teacher salaries, the health budget and the public sector. Um, it was. It struck me that this was a bit like um, not North Korea's Juche or Autarky uh, doctrine, but the other one they have, Songon, military first, because, you know, pay the soldiers before the health care, if I've understood that correctly. But don't panic. So he's talking in uh, far more detail than I can read out here about the economic downturn, shortfall in GDP. We'll get through this crisis. Everything's ticking over well. The government's fully functioning. Well, they do say that till the day that the government packs up in most of these regimes. Throughout the war, he says with a raised finger, there were no delays in the payment of pensions or military payments. Therefore, there's no reason to, well, this is, I, I'm not going to capitalize on the bad English. He's, he's not really saying no reason to think about the catastrophe. He's saying no reason to think there will be a catastrophe, but. Right, and this is on the basis that, of course, it's US money that's paying for the whole Absolutely. system to work in Ukraine. At the Absolutely, moment. it's on the never-never. It's ultimately Chinese money loaned to America that America doesn't have either. So what does Marchenko go on to say? Uh, he talks about the um, uh, economist interview he gave, which unfortunately is behind a paywall, but he was telling the, uh, the world's oligarchs uh, who read The Economist and fund it uh, in mid-May, 14th of May, that it would be hard for the economy to sustain a long war. And he takes the Ukrainian journalists to task for putting to him that The Economist interview seemed to suggest that the, the Ukraine was on its knees economically. He said, no, no, read the original. Well, those with access may wish to, because he, he has fairly said, you must read what I really said. But the interviewer came back to him, the mind.ua interviewer, and said, was everything you said about potential nationalization of industries also mistranslated? And he said, oh, that was completely something separate. And I said it could only be a last, uh, you know, a desperate last step. So never mind. 
Um, he was then asked at the, uh, the end of this interview, uh, what about the, the sanctions from the new uh, Western uh, initiative? Uh, he talks about this not really being his remit. It's really more of the bag of the, the Ministry of the, uh, the Economy. He shoves the, uh, the ball in, the, in their court a few times. Uh, but he's, he does admit at the end that Russia is gaining a billion euros uh, every day from this while Ukraine is losing 300 million. And there is now what they call the new G, G8 uh, emerging. Uh, the, the, it's the BRICS minus South Africa, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, two more Western Asian powers, Iran and Turkey, and uh, two others, uh, namely Indonesia and Mexico, underrated uh, rising uh, giants, I would say, in the economy. All of these eight, they're not a formal bloc, but they've all said we are not taking part in these sanctions. Uh, watch a recent video by Alex uh, Christoforou of the Durand to see the significance of that. Um, it's, it's looking pretty bad, but we must crack on with the economy. Just in passing, MIND uh, decides as an editorial policy to spell every occurrence of Russia, Russian and Kremlin in lower case. How, adver how grown up is that? And while I was capturing this piece, I found that Ukraine, which has, as people know, I think, who watch this program, one of the most advanced uh, digital identity apps in the world now, even leapfrogging Singapore and the Netherlands because of this crisis of opportunity of the war, the DIA app. You can now apply to adopt a child through the DIA app. And on screen is the deputy social policy minister. Would you adopt a child from this man? Uh, but we must go on. Pepe Escobar, and again, I will just be summary here, a well-known commentator in the alternative media, speaks about half of Ukraine's economy having gone. Uh, he says it's a beyond a failed state uh, because he's going back to this Marchenko interview. He says that income tax revenue is now a secondary context. In other words, a second, second thought. The main thought is, here it comes, international grant and credit assistance. And Escobar translates Marchenko's remarks as meaning that two thirds of Ukraine's day to day expenses are de facto paid by borrowing and grants from the EU, the International Monetary Fund, assorted funds, etc. All of this will have to be repaid with interest. Ukraine will never be able to manage. So Ukraine as a state has gone. He shares your analysis pretty completely. Escobar concludes that Russia is keeping its cool because Russian uh, uh, oil, pri oil prices as they currently obtain are perfectly enough to keep Russia going unlike the end of the Soviet Union period where it, it, it put paid to the Soviet Union. Now on my Telegram channel, Eastern Approaches, uh, a, a very astute Russian speaker has written this, which I will just advance through rather than read out, which is making the same point. Uh, the, the, the Prime Minister Shmihal has said that they're running a five billion a month de deficit in the Ukraine, which is two and a half times as much as the entire Estonian state budget. It would mean that if Germany were this, taking on this deficit themselves, they would have to give 7% of their German budgets to maintain current expenses in the Ukraine, and the US could not even make them pay 2% of their turnover in the last five years. In other words, they have no resources. Now, here comes the interesting bit. Britain alone will not be able to pull Ukraine. There's an increasing comment uh, rising in the Russian-speaking world that this is Britain having miscalculated even vis-a-vis -vis America and having thought that the Europeans and Americans would be with them in this borrow to, to, to fight a proxy war wheeze, that by autumn, says my subscriber, Britain will be surrendering Ukraine to Russia, and in a particularly subtle, well, we always are subtle in these things, subtle way. Uh, Ukraine really could start a famine by autumn by deliberately not exporting its grain by, via Gdansk or other routes or Russian-held ports. And we'll be having to deal with, as we've seen in the third world in the past, Brian, um, you know, deliberate humanitarian disasters to, to twist our arms. Um, that there's, again, pause that if you want to read that, but the main point at the end of this post was uh, that the Russian-held regions are actually getting a ruble-based real economy, 
and uh, you know th th there's a real po possibility of famine. I beg your pardon for going too far there, but uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the uh, president of the European Commission, came to give her big set piece speech on Europe Day, the 9th of May, which they do call the State of the Union Address, and it even begins with my fellow Europeans cribbed on the US State of the Union Address. But here, just a month ago, she is rather heavily hinting that they can't have individual EU member states blocking sanctions or war policy anymore. She speaks about defence and health as the two areas in which the European Union must go to qualified majority voting, even though that will mean forcing each member state to accede to a change to the uh, um, uh, founding treaties of the EU, the, the TEU and the TFEU. Uh, so let's have a listen to von der Leyen speaking a month ago. But my fellow Europeans, even beyond this, there is a need to go further. For example, I have always argued that unanimity voting in some key areas simply no longer makes sense if we want to be able to move faster. <laughs> or that Europe should play a greater role, for example, in health or defence after the experience of the last two years. And we need to improve the way our democracy works on a permanent basis. I want to be clear that I will always be on the side of those who want to reform the European Union to make it work better. The point is, you have told us where you want this Europe to go. And it's now up to us to take the most direct way there, either by using the full limits of what we can do within the treaties, or, yes, by changing the treaties if need be. So if they can't get their way, they're going to simply drop the democratic part yes. such as it is. This is the Fourth Reich emerging. I'm it being is. deliberately provocative here. This is the EU, the Fourth Reich. We need to get the power on the ground quicker. We don't want votes to get in the way. Yes, it's a complicated structure in the EU, but uh, people often think, well, the, the European Parliament is secondary to the Commission, the permanent bureaucracy. But technically, and in the treaties that von der Leyen referred to, the top level blocking ability, the vetoing, is the European Council, uh, technically the Council of the European Union, uh, which is able, because it was created later for this specific purpose, to say, hang on, we, the French, for example, any member states, are not prepared to go along with this. And that's the level that von der Leyen is now saying we need to whip out there. So she uh, and the people who back her and, and, and put her in position are saying, well, we are now confident that we can fiddle the, the government, the permanent bureaucracy and the politics of each member state, even France, Germany and Italy which is, is quite something to be saying. And you can see the fear, uh, because what Rumsfeld used to call New Europe, uh, a belt of countries in the East uh, what, that want reasonable relations with Russia and in the Mediterranean, are not on board with the Franco-German-Italian sort of um, uh, City of London-dominated thinking here. Uh, so here we see that uh, uh, Gulyas Gergely, um, uh, the uh, head of the Hungarian Prime Minister's office, so uh, Orban's personal head of office, uh, has pointed a finger. This was as far back as the 1st of May, reported by al Mayadin. Uh, he says that we're getting a, a rap, even at that time, 1st of May, for having opened an account with Gazprom to, to buy gas. Uh, but there's nine other unnamed member states 
uh, which have done exactly the same thing, but they've done it secretly. Uh, he told a Hungarian radio station, Kossuth Radio, about this. Uh, so that the, the world is, 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 even the European Union is not much impressed by this drive for sanctions and unanimity and uh, a majority rule defense policy in the EU. Uh, going to other parts of the world, the Economic Times, an imprint of the India Times, uh, covers Dr. Jai Shankar, the Minister of Econ External Affairs, so the Foreign Minister, uh, making recent remarks that uh, India's position is not so-called fence-sitting because it's one of the so-called new G8 that simply won't play along with these sanctions because they're not part of the West. He says that that's not um, lack of concern, it is just looking after our own interests. He was speaking uh, in, in an address titled Taking Friendship to the Next Level, Allies in the Indo-Pacific Region. But he was speaking in Bratislava, Slovakia, in New Europe, right? So this is quite important. He says that India is one-fifth of the world's population. Uh, it's uh, Europe, time for Europe to grow out of the mindset that its problems are automatically the world problems, but not vice versa. He says our rapprochement within, with China happened well before the Ukraine war. Come on, guys, this isn't a clever argument to suggest it was Ukraine cause. Jai Shankar also says the world can't be Eurocentric anymore. And he goes on to make reports about India's decision to keep purchasing Russian oil and also to limit its wheat purchases, uh, wheat imports to selected buyers. He rebuts the claim that they're, they're becoming uh, a closed market and says we do, we do export wheat, but we're just not going to be one of those poorer countries anymore uh, that are told whom to sell our raw materials to in lockstep. So that there is, that there's, there's nothing really... Um, devastatingly new here it's just that India is actually saying openly now we are we are not prepared to have uh, you know to be to be messed around anymore in this and, and we're, we're we're putting this information forward to the audience uh, Alex when in fact if we look at mainstream media in UK we look at the BBC this story is simply not being told no. they don't want the embarrassment of saying <clears throat> excuse me well actually that uh, people are moving away from the European Union the, 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 the speeches of foreign ministers uh, who, in, in this particular case, even say, I represent a huge slice of the world's wealth and population, but certainly mid-ranking ones as well, uh, they're, they're not covered unless they are being a lackey to the West or they're, they're you know, coming out shaking their fist like Dr. Mahathir Mohammed used to. Then they come out and then they get trotted out for mockery. Otherwise, they're just ignored. Um, just to reinforce that point, an excellent rising website called The Cradle, which is thecradle.co, uh, covers the Venezuelan-Iranian uh, state friendship. And so the, the presidents uh, here are uh, talking about a rapprochement. And uh, the Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, while, while visiting Tehran, talks about the end of US military dominance in the world, a time of geopolitical transition that will define the destiny of the 21st century. And uh, he thanks Iran for having helped it overcome unilateral US sanctions that nearly destroyed Venezuela's oil industry. Uh, this, this genie is out of the bottle. Meanwhile, however, the United States here, it's Dernsa, the director of the National Security Agency, who also heads up the cyber effort, General Paul Nakasone, has told a British channel in an exclusive, Sky News, that uh, his hackers, so that's the equivalent of the GCHQ and, and, um, uh, uh, um, and, and uh, CESG hackers that I used to work with, they are already uh, working on behalf of the Ukrainians. You could say that in this regard, the United States has already declared war on Russia because the US is very explicit in its doctrine that cyber is a domain of warfare. So Nakasone has told uh, Sky News that they are, um, he was speaking in Estonia, um, that uh, every single day he's concerned about Russian cyber attacks, but he confirmed to them for the first time that the US was offensively hacking 
that must be in Russia in response to the Russian invasion. Full spectrum hacking. And uh, we also see from the Washington Post that private groups, contractors, you could say uh, mercenary outfits, are bringing combat gear to the Ukraine, which uh, couldn't clear Congress. So uh, what the, uh, the uh, reporter Karun Demirjan reports is that uh, they've got access, because they're an establishment paper, to these gentlemen who do that. And it, the, the Washington Post admits it's a delicate venture because this is sensitive military equipment. Three Congress people, at least, have been approached by groups saying, how can we expedite these applications to get the government to approve uh, export of stuff that is too spicy? You just referred to Biden talking about not sending long-range uh, guns to the Ukraine because they would fight Russia with us, uh, shoot into Russia with them. So we see that um, it depends on personal connections forged through often cryptic ties that bind the community of special operation troops and veterans. Uh, secrecy is hardwired into the culture of doing this. You can see what's going on there, Brian, can't you? It is, uh, you know, a backhanded uh, extension of the United States Department of Defense's aid to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and well, we've got the mercenaries on the ground. We've got forces from the U.S., U.K., and other Western countries on the ground. So the the story that this is a war between Ukraine and Russia is simply not true, as you say. Um, well, that takes us on probably to what's in the minds of the uh, men and women who create such a proxy war. And David, I think this is where we bring you in. Uh, you were talking about uh, what's called slaughter bots. Yes, this was a 2017 um, film to highlight the issue. It's from a, an organisation called the Future of Life Institute, who are uh, the campaign... Um, I, I, against AI and automated devices that may uh, make us less safe. Um, they have Elon Musk on their board, incidentally. And so this is a 2017 film. Um, we've got a short clip. It's uh, very striking stuff. Pilots directed almost 3,000 precision strikes last year. We're super proud of it. It allows you to separate the bad guys from the good. It's a big deal. But we have something much bigger. Your kids probably have one of these, right? Not quite. Hell of a pilot? No. That skill is all AI. It's flying itself. Its processor can react a hundred times faster than a human. The stochastic motion is an anti-sniper feature. Just like any mobile device these days, it has cameras and sensors, and just like your phones and social media apps, it does facial recognition. Inside here is three grams of shaped explosive. This is how it works. Did you see that? That little bang is enough to penetrate the skull and destroy the contents. They used to say guns don't kill people. People do. Well, people don't. They get emotional. Disobey orders, aim high. Let's watch the weapons make the decisions. 
Now trust me, these were all bad guys. Now that is an airstrike of surgical precision. So this was 2017 to highlight the problem. Um, the, uh, the Institution of uh, Electrical and Electronic Engineers, IEEE, uh, they picked up this and they did an article called Why You Shouldn't Fear the Slaughterbots. Um, and uh, this was... Um, you just yeah, just whoops. jump through two slides, right. David. That's, so, uh, sorry. Beg your pardon. Um, so this, they did a, an article well. called Why You Shouldn't Fear the Slaughterbots, which I'm trying to get to. There we go. Now, um, and this was saying that the video was 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 overhyping the thing con uh, to a considerable degree. So they said that the video assumes the following: uh, the governments will mass produce lethal micro drones and use them as weapons of mass destruction. Okay, <laughs> there will be no effective defences against the lethal micro drones. The governments are incapable of keeping military-grade weapons out of the hands of terrorists, and terrorists are capable of launching large-scale coordinated attacks. Um, these assumptions range from questionable best to the fanciful. Well, I'm not so sure that any of that is fanciful. And to be fair to the IEEE, um, they then did um, a response to that, why you should fear the slaughterbots. And looking at the most um, convincing argument they put that... Uh, that there was no um, there was no effective defence. Um, they then said, "Well, the, the article that was saying we shouldn't be afraid." I quoted the New York Times article, um, but that wasn't very convincing because it describes decidedly mixed results from the Department of Defence's hard kill challenge, which aims to see which new classified technologies and tactics prove most promising. The DoD's own conclusion: bottom line, most technologies are still immature. The Hard Kill Challenge is the successor to the Black Dart program, which uh, ran annually uh, beginning in 2002. After more than 15 years, we still have no effective countermeasures. So that is a bit concerning. Uh, we come forward here to December 2021. Uh, the conversation is talking about the UN. The UN are looking at this, but they fail to agree on killer robot ban uh, as nations pour billions into autonomous weapons research. So there's no limitation on it. And if we come forward to this year, uh, bang up to date with the World Economic Forum at Davos, they're talking about why we need to, and we're not, but they say we need to in the future, regulate non-state use of arms. And what are they they're talking about? Uh, open source AI and lightweight onboard processing. Um, civilian devices such as drones can be used for photography can be converted into lethal autonomous weapons. Once the software of commercial unmanned aerial vehicles is adapted for lethal purposes, uh, global dissemination is inevitable and there's no practical way to prevent the spread of the code and states must agree on anti-proliferation measures. Um, so they're saying that this it is a real concern. Uh, they're saying that the, uh, there is no limitation on what might be done and that uh, the Slaughterbots video uh, is, in fact, a warning that we should be heeding. Uh, I would certainly say that was the, uh, the case, David. And, uh, well, we had a glimpse of the 
uh, the two slides there with the tragic death of the young British soldier who'd gone out to Ukraine to operate as a mercenary. Uh, we may get a chance to call that up later in the news, but basically my point was that uh, the situation with the drones is now such that we can watch troops fighting in trenches. Uh, it's possible to see people being killed on a minute-by-minute minute basis. This is how accurate this technology has I, got. I had an early version of that in 2002 when I was in the same section as the Afghan war effort at GCHQ, and I remember being revolted by it then, but you, it, from the air you could already see it. Yes, um, so there's much work to be done, but of course the probably the most frightening thing about this is the mentality of the politicians and the so-called global leaders who are progressing all of this technology in the first place. David, take us on to um, disinformation and homeland security. Yes, yeah, so a few weeks ago, we covered a, a good news story that the Department of Homeland Security in America um, had set up a, dis, a disinformation governance board, and this had collapsed in, uh, well, claiming that they'd been the victim of disinformation. And it was deeply funny, and there was many songs surrounding this, so we had a bit of fun with it. Well, they're trying to reboot it. Uh, and let's, uh, let's have a little look at what they're up to. Um, the um, Heritage Foundation right-wing uh, think tank in America uh, aren't very impressed. They say the Homeland Security's rebooted disinformation plan is no better than the first. And they summarise that the federal government has no business determining what is truth. Amen to that. Uh, and that the government and politicians and tech companies have developed a significant relying a significant reliance on censoring content that goes against their narrative. We know that to our cost. Uh, and Americans, indeed everyone else, should remain sceptical of the administration's spin to justify its content control and censorship. Um, so, uh, but a, a little bit here, there's just a, a, an example of where this is going. Uh, the new people they've brought in um, to uh, look after the uh, the, the uh, what was termed the Ministry of Truth, uh, are Chertoff and Gorlick. Um, uh, so they're now going to run the show. And now, these, are, these are pretty uh, uh, worrying choices, aren't they, David? Just to, to pause on that point. Chertoff is Mr. Well, this, cover this up, is, isn't this he? Is, and and, and Gorlick is, is uh, Mr. Prosecutor. Well, this is it. You see, following, uh, you see the next slide, following 9-11, the largest terrorist attack in the country, uh, writes the Heritage Foundation, um, the, uh, the investigations and analysis of how terrorists were, were able to pull off the attack uh, revealed a wall of separation between law enforcement and the intelligence community. Gorlick was exposed as responsible for directing that the FBI and federal prosecutors ignore information gathered through intelligence investigations. This obstacle was listed as one of the many factors that led to the terrorist attack by the 9-11 Commission. Typical of how Washington operates, Gorlick was on the 9-11 Commission. Now, for our point of view, the fact that Gorlick was on the 9-11 Commission is the real concern that, that someone on that, uh, with that background, is going to be running their new Ministry of Truth. We know how much truth we can expect. Uh, now, this has been um, resisted and pushed back by uh, one of the senators in America. So United States Senate here, we have a letter uh, from him um, to the Department of Homeland Security. It's Ali uh, uh, so Alejandro uh, Oh, thank you very much, Alex. Um, so he writes that documents show that contrary to the DHS's May 
2022 testimony to the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, um, the Disinformation Governance Board was established to serve much, uh, as much more than a simple working group to develop guidelines. Um, so he then goes on, he says, specifically, documents describe a prominent DGB uh, designed to serve as a departmental forum for governance of Department of Homeland Security policies, plans, procedures, standards and activities pertaining to what the government refers to as mis, dis and malinformation, oh, MDM, that threatens Homeland Security. And for those who don't know, malinformation is information that is correct. It's just terribly embarrassing to the regime. Um, and he continues, documents also suggest that the department has been working on plans to operationalize its relationship with private social media companies to implement its public policy goals. As a quote, for example, we obtained a draft, draft briefing notes prepared for a scheduled April 28, 2002 meeting between Robert Silvers and Twitter executives, Nick Peel, head of policy, and Joel Roth, head of site integrity. So it's that's a public-private partnership, gentlemen. That's how it's going to be run. It's a mixture of big tech and government is going to be censoring everything that you uh, see on uh, all channels. And he finishes off here, collectively whistleblowing allegations and documents we've reviewed raise concerns that the Department of Homeland Security could be seeking an active role in coordinating the censorship of viewpoints that it determines, according to an unknown standard, to be MDM, by enlisting the help of social media companies. And he finishes off the First Amendment of the Constitution was designed precisely so that government could not censor opposing viewpoints, even if those viewpoints were false. So um, it seems to be that the Department of Homeland Security, having lost the plot with the Disinformation Governing Board, are just doubling down. They've got some people who can be relied on, as the 9-11 Commission was relied on to say a particular line and they're pushing to get the tech companies on board to remove your right of free speech. Thank you for that, David. I'm just going to jump in there and say, and of course, what they're really telling people is how afraid they are of factual, truthful information, because they've got to have a system in order to falsely label information and prevent it from spreading to, to the wider population. So we're being told very, very um, clearly now that the real fear of those who would take even more power, they're in power, but they want more power, is that they cannot have truth uh, coming out from anybody because this spoils the narrative. One of our subscribers has just said in the comment box that Biden let slip in a recent interview that if it was up to him, he would put oppositionists in jail, which is that which we accuse our Eurasian adversaries of doing isn't it? But uh, the Americans have learned a lot from the Brits, uh, putting things in, the, in what we would call a safe pair of hands, uh, pre-cooked inquiries. We're decades ahead of the Americans in that, but they seem to have learned from us. <laughs> Whether that's a good thing or not, I don't know, Alex. Well, what we would just say at this point that if you like what the UK column is uh, doing, please uh, join us, come on board. Um, we need more people to become subscribers to UK column. The agenda is to grow and expand the work that we're doing and we can only do that with your financial support of course if you want to uh, come in and shop that's a, a big help to us straight away and it's been really pleasing to see that uh, uk column items are moving off the shelves quite quickly so if you haven't got a hoodie or a t-shirt or one of the excellent little bags please get into the shop and have a look for those 
And of course, the key, key bit that we're always saying is that the information that UK Column puts out is designed to go as far and wide as possible. So if you can help uh, uh, take that load and uh, share information, then uh, we're thoroughly delighted. Now, of course, over the weekend, Mike Robinson and uh, the team did a lot of work in order to put on yet another symposium for Doctors for COVID Ethics. And very pleased to say that that ran extremely uh, smoothly. I think we might have a little bit of a video clip to show what happened here. Is that the case? We'll see what happens. It may just be being queued up, but it is, is really it, quite an It might be in the slide. Let me just uh, see what happens. We, no. we don't, I think. We've just okay. been notified through the door. All right. Apologies for that. Um, but uh, uh, this was a really tremendous event. And uh, we've got to say a very big thank you to everybody that helped make it happen. And there's some new faces in there. Uh, Dr. Sylvia Behrendt in Vienna, for example, is just one I would highlight as a particularly incisive legal mind. So you don't think, oh, I've heard this crowd before. You haven't heard all of them. And even those who are regulars, you haven't heard everything that they have to say. Indeed. And the other, the other thing which I think we ought to say is that, uh, of course, we're giving these uh, speakers a platform or helping them have a platform to speak out. Uh, they have varying opinions and each and every one of us may agree or may disagree with some of the things that uh, these individuals have to say. But the key uh, important point is there, that, that there is a platform for free speech. And so if you watch it and you disagree with some of the things, please judge it in context of all the information these very brave people are putting out. Leave the excommunication for the theological debates, let's say. Indeed. Right. Um, so we just put up this advert, Saturday the 18th of June at 1pm outside the cathedral in Truro is a solution-based freedom rally. Uh, a lot of very interesting speakers, if you freeze this on screen you can see. Uh, UK Column has been assisting by the, from the background and I think that uh, we may well have a UK Column uh, speaker there on the day, but we're waiting to confirm that. And uh, we'd also like to give... Uh, uh, a big shout out really for this one. This is uh, the launching of the Can We Talk About It campaign. And this is it's all about those people who've taken vaccines and are now suffering vaccine adverse reactions and injuries. And it's so important that these particular individuals have somewhere to go. And of course, their key statement is that they found to date that it has been very difficult to get anybody to pay attention to what they're talking about, with the exception of some MPs who are now starting to take, um, take notice of what they're saying, and also people inside the NHS who are recognising that something has happened as a result of uh, vaccines being administered. You can freeze the second part of it on screen here to read the small print, um, but uh, I think this is a very worthwhile um, organization and campaign and we 7 p.m for those in britain okay thank you for that alex now you've got a little bit of uh, comment here i think alex, yes i think we'll, we'll we'll let uh, katie joe uh, talk about this in a moment but just just to, to set the scene for for her her majesty's government is now pretending in all seriousness that it has just discovered that if people are shut away and are lonely that they will suffer mental health distress uh, they even have a quotation from 
uh, the Minister for Civil Society and Youth, uh, which I think is a title that in, in many previous totalitarian regimes they would have had such a ministerial uh, portfolio. But anyway, Nigel Huddleston says loneliness can affect all of us. There is no mention of the elderly in this press re release uh, when I scanned it. Uh, there was in fact a particular focus on the young and the sexually different, uh, completely wiping out uh, the traditionally most lonely section of society, namely the elderly. Uh, just to point out how egregiously um, uh, disingenuous this is, uh, let's highlight one of many pieces on the website which would uh, fit the bill here. Ian Davis writing in July 2020 under the title Lockdown Deaths, Not Covid Deaths. A long and uh, comprehensive piece, but just one section here speaks about uh, the fact that it was, and I say fact advisedly, I know the word is overused now in that phrase, but the fact that it wasn't Covid-19 that killed the majority of people who spiked in deaths during lockdown. They lost their lives because they either couldn't or wouldn't access hospital treatment. The most vulnerable, particularly those quiet uh, and suffering elderly again were sent letters telling them to stay at home to protect the NHS and they duly complied more than the young or other sections of society would but they did. Uh, it, the deaths were not because of or due to the response to coronavirus it was the result of a vicious lockdown regime. So Katie Joe, you have something to bring us up to date with on the effects of loneliness particularly on the elderly I believe. Um, yes thank you. This, this is portrayed um, incredibly well in the moving documentary that Alice the Journalist um, has uh, done. It's the fourth in the series of her Power of the People documentaries. And I believe it was shown after extra time on Monday. Oh, um, and that, uh, that now is on the UK Column homepage. And it's an incredibly moving documentary about the story of a grandmother, a mother and a daughter, and what it was like for them during the lockdown when they couldn't actually visit their mother and grandmother um, and it's only a 30 minute long documentary but we've had incredible feedback from those that managed to see it so I would definitely recommend you go and have a watch of that. Okay Katie Joe, thank you very much for that. Now uh, you've got a, um, uh, a slide here let's bring this up this is Hope Essex tell us about what's going on here. Hope Sussex yes so I'm so excited to <laughs> He said Essex. So excited to let your viewers know about the incredible music festival um, that we are having this year. Um, so Hope is organising the event at the end of July. Um, and you're probably wondering what is a home education group doing hosting events? Well, when the vaccine passports came in, I decided if we, the unwashed, can't go to events, then we'll have to put our own on. So I've been wanting to come festivals for the past couple of years. And Hope Hub of Pivotal Events is the perfect way for us to fundraise for Hope Home of Personalised Education. And as music is such an important part, uh, live music especially, is such an important part of my life and, 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 and other people's lives, um, not just for the performers, but also for the, uh, the audience participants, um, it was a music festival was, was the one that I really wanted to do first. And the support we've had from artists and volunteers is immense. Uh, the programme is absolutely awesome and even better, the UK Column team are going to be broadcasting the event along with exclusive interviews with the artists. So this is a really exciting uh, exclusive for UK Column news as well. Uh, right Said Fred are going to be hosting the main stage on Saturday 30th of July and the whole gig is going to be like nothing else you've ever been to before. 
pretty much every singer, DJ and band you can think of from the freedom movement in this country will be there. We have the awesome DJs Danny Rampling, Mark Devlin, DJ Tita, Bad Mother Funka, Slip Map and more spinning the decks. There will be amazing bands and artists like the Iron Boot Scrapers, Victorious, the Jazz Band, MC Lucas Lyon, Ellie Brooke, Peter Trot, the list goes on and on. And the Voices of Freedom Choir song um, that we recorded is now available and you can listen to that on the website. So you can learn it and we would like to have as many voices singing along with us um, at the festival as possible. And to top it all off, Jam for Freedom have their own tent. So Jam for Freedom are an amazing organisation that have been touring around the whole country um, and not stopping during any of the lockdowns, making sure that live music continued. And they will be jamming throughout the whole festival um, in their own tent, hosted by Campbell himself and the other Jam for Freedom ambassadors. There will also be free, workshop, uh, free scheduled workshops in the Jam for Freedom tents for all ages. Uh, this festival is taking place in East Sussex and the early bird price until the end of June for this festival is £99 for an adult, £60 for a, uh, 13 to 18 year olds and under 13 year olds are free. It's a three day event and camping is included and you can buy your tickets now at uh, our website hope-hubofpivotalevents.co.uk. So tickets are going quite fast and are limited so if you do want to come go and grab your ticket and join us. Yeah, Katie Joe, thank you very much for that. It's a wonderful thing to start to see people doing very positive things um, to bring people together and for people to enjoy themselves. So that, that has got to be a very good thing. Apologies about the slip there because I've probably upset a few people by calling uh, Sussex, Essex. Oh, no. A slightly different cut of person. Indeed, but we won't dwell on that too much. Now, let's move on, Katie Joe. You've been... Uh, uh, involved in the subject of home education for some time but what have you picked up here uh, with this very interesting image house of lords second reading of school bill home education yeah the reason i chose to start with that is because it's great to see mp jenny jones speaking out so passionately in parliament about the dangers of the new schools bill um, in fact, another MP uh, for the Green Party, Natalie uh, Bennett, spoke about the massive flaws in our education system recently too. Um, the new schools bill threatens homeschooling uh, by creating a mandatory register of homeschooled children and gives unlimited power to the local authority. Uh, there are threats of fines and year-long imprisonment for parents not complying. Uh, firstly, I'll tell you why I home educate. I home educate because I, as a mother, know what's best for my children. And it was a matter of urgency when I took my first daughter out of school seven years ago. Um, for the first two years, Molly was unschooled. She climbed trees and we're, she's, we're lucky enough that we live in an in a area where she could just disappear in the fields, in the countryside for most of the day, rescuing rabbits and birds and sodden sheep from the canal. And she saw a tutor once a week. We worked on projects at home. Um, she loved reading. Uh, she had a pony and eventually, she did gain her maths, English and science GCSEs and uh, she, she got a place on a, um, an art diploma course, even though she didn't actually take art as a GCSE. The reason she got onto the art diploma course was because she had her own portfolio that she'd done um, and she'd made a costume herself 
and she had a passion for creating costumes. That's what Molly wants to be. She wants to be a seamstress for theatre. Um, I know that her education, although some might seem um, maybe low on the academic side, I know it was right for her and myself and my husband knew what was right for her. At the moment, as a home educator, you can teach your children in any way that suits you and them. You can teach them things that are important to you and things that you're passionate about. You can uh, do it in any time you like. You don't have to cram eight hours of lessons and uh, homework in a day. Um, and you can allow them to have time to ponder and be creative and allow their individuality and originality to flourish. So the LEA, the Local Education Authority, can ask for reports on the education you are providing with an informal inquiry, but you are not legally required to have visits or provide evidence of work. If the new school's bill is enacted, it will destroy your privacy as a family and your children will become property of the state. And I am pleading to everyone to oppose this bill, even if you don't home educate. What happens if in the future you are deeply unhappy with the education system and your children um, or your children's children in the future and they want to come out of school? It's vital that we have the choice and we have that option. Uh, Prince Charles on Tuesday the 10th of May uh, deputised for Her Majesty and advised on areas the government is planning to legislate on in the near future. He said reforms to the education uh, will help every child fulfil their potential wherever they live, raising standards and improving the quality of schools and higher education. The very next day, the school's bill was read in the House of Lords. There is an urgency to get this bill passed without any evidence um, of, of any, any need for it. Um, there has been no independent studies showing there is a problem with home educated children or that their needs aren't being met or that they are in danger. In fact, the government doesn't seem to like the fact that they are losing, that the parents are losing faith in the system at a rapid rate and are waking up to the harm the education system can actually have on children. According to the Association of Directors, Children's Services, they estimate that as of October 2021, there have been around 81,200 children registered as home educated in England. They say this is likely an underestimate because registration is voluntary. Compare this to 60,500 registered as home educated in 2019, and you can see the huge rise since the pandemic. In, nine, in 2019, a survey carried out by Channel, floor, uh, Channel 4's dispatches showed 93% of responding local authorities reported they don't feel confident, they're aware of all the home educated children living in their area. The Department for Education published its response to the consultation of children not in school in February this year. It stated that the government remained committed to a register system for children not in school and would be engaging with local authorities and home educated sectors as well as undertaking further work on the practical aspects of delivery. And Consultation emphasised... Those were the sorry, graphics on, that were Alex. being showed. For those listening in audio, you might want to go back to the video of this news because uh, on screen intermittently while you were speaking was that government response. Lovely, thank you. 
On the key proposal for a register of children not in school, the government set out widely differing responses to proposal in the consultation, with 96% of authority represents uh, in favour, no surprise there then, but 82% of parents and young people who responded to the consultation opposed. The consultation emphasised safeguarding in the government's decisions to proceed with this legislating for a register. This brings me back to what I said earlier. Where are the safeguarding worries for home educated children? There are, I tell you where there are a lot of worries, safeguarding worries, and that is actually in school. The um, penalty for non-compliance to this register or failure to provide all information requested could result in a fine of up to £2,500 and a prison sentence. Uh, also, if a school attendance order is issued, local authorities' powers will be strengthened and a child will not be allowed to deregister de again for the duration of their education. This is massive. It has massive implications. I would like to ask the government a question. Why? Why are so many children being home educated? And then look at where it's going wrong. If they really cared about children, they wouldn't be turning every school into an academy. They wouldn't be uh, worrying about statistics and money. They would be looking at the current education system and seeing where it's failing our children instead of trying to control and interfere with our innate human right to teach our children as we see fit. But as we know, they don't want to change the uh, schooling system. They want children back in school where they can manipulate and indoctrinate them. And home education is going up in such high numbers over the last two years. And this is a huge threat to their control. Okay, if they take... were that worried about the safety of children, then they would be they would be looking at how they can change the system. So it's not compulsory at the moment to, to send your children to school, and it's really important that we don't allow this bill to go through. Thank, thank you for that, Katie Joe. Would I be right in saying that? Well, the impression that I get is this is about control. The government feels that if people home educate their children it's lost control over those children and therefore massively got, yeah therefore they've got to do everything they can in order to get the children where they can be controlled and that's in school and of course it isn't just about education if the children are in school the children come under the control of nhs policy or health and safety policy which sounds reasonable on the surface but we may not agree with all of it um, but you bring the child into school, they can be controlled uh, from the moment they're through the school gates. Whereas if the child's at home with mum and dad, the government uh, doesn't know what's being taught. This is what's behind the it's, Scottish exactly. government's uh, named person uh, ideas. You know, the idea of signposting and early uh, flagging up early what was going on. And I see David is wanting to come in there because, uh, you know, as soon as you mentioned Scotland, there's a huge... Uh, back knowledge of uh, of what's gone on in Scotland, where home education has suffered more attacks than any other part of the British Isles, I would say. Yeah, David. Uh, just just very quickly, uh, the named person uh, scheme was eventually overthrown in the UK Supreme Court, and in their finding, they said, "quote The first thing that a totalitarian regime tries to do is to get at the children, to distance them from the subversive." varied influence of their families and indoctrinate them in the ruler's view of the world, end quote. 
the the other thing, David, which I think ties this together, and you will certainly endorse, and I, I expect Katie Joe as well, but particularly from the Scottish experience, uh, is that we cannot overlook the role of uh, paedophiles and sexual perverts in wanting children in schools and controlled environments. This point is brought up on the next slide that I had to accompany Katie Joe's important segment here, which is that the Christian podcast Irreverend, which is run by a couple of Church of England vicars, had a very useful recent episode on the 22nd of May with two ladies you see on screen at the moment who are profound experts and highly eloquent. Uh, the episode is entitled The Schools Bill Must Die. That is the draft law that Katie Joe has just been talking about the dangers of. Here is the uh, write-up for the episode which people can freeze the screen. But don't skip listening to this even if you think you are well up. Uh, whether you're in Britain or elsewhere in the world, on the threats to home education, because one of these ladies in particular draws out how there's a link through to social services, which, as we know, is a well-known environment in which uh, the abused children, where they are, where there are abused children, are routinely given back to the abusive parent and the abusive officials. And this is being brought out very strongly that if it's a single parent who's fled abuse, who is home educating the children after the breakup of the family. Um, often, uh, or if this, this goes, bill goes through, the local education authority would be able to legally oblige them to say where they lived, and this information would, of course, get back to the abusive parent. Yeah, indeed, totally agree with that. Uh, where does that take us now, David? I think uh, that moves us on to where are we? Um, you've got vaccines in Germany. Uh, this one is mine before, David. Is it? okay. It's the same issue, but I'm just going to lead into it from Germany. So from a month ago, we have a blog uh, on Substack called Second Smartest Guy in the World. I like the modesty. About half a million Germans having been severely injured by COVID vaccines. This is now a survey by La Charité, the very hospital where Christian Drosten hangs out, uh, widely described now as a fake professor uh, who wrote the PCR test specifically for COVID in a very questionable way. Now, La Charité has got far more detail than I will go through, but they have done a, a typically thoroughly German assessment, the, uh, greatly embarrassing the uh, German Public Health Institute, the PEI. Um, and this is a, a well uh, overdue study, really. Uh, and we see here in bold in the write-up of the study that uh, they're now getting in the Marburg Special Outpatient Clinic two to 400 emails a day from those affected by COVID vaccine injury, and the waiting list is 800 patients. Um, and to accompany that, the Daily Skeptic is reporting that the Bundestag has got a committee of experts which has now got a draft report finding no evidence that lockdowns did anything. And this looks like a change of tide in Berlin since the Merkel administration finally shuffled off the scene. Uh, because the Daily Skeptic is giving hosts to an excellent German blogger here to report that he has seen the Süddeutsche Zeitung, that's a major Munich newspaper, they, they got hold of a draft of the, the report. And to the blogger's surprise, they weren't preparing to do a whitewash. They are preparing to wrap Merkel and her public health officials and politicians over the knuckles uh, for having done something totally useless and counterproductive, thereby cutting loose Lauterbach and Drosten and uh, other health supremos of Germany and uh, leaving them to uh, to carry the can. So even Germany is getting in on the act of drawing a line under the COVID lockdown and pretending that the current authorities had nothing to do with it. But David, that takes us to a segment of your own on COVID jabs. Yeah, this takes us to Canada. We have a video here. This is uh, one of the first uh, vaccine uh, compensation claims, which has been settled by the Canadian government. 
and uh, it's a, a very moving piece and we can see the harm that's been caused. I have the wrist strength to even hold my wrists out straight. So. His muscle strength is weak in his hands, his legs too, forcing the Lake Country man to wear these braces. Yeah. They're just an insole, they slide in, in my shoe. Ross Whiteman suffers from Guillain-Barre syndrome, a rare condition affecting the nervous system. I had paralysis from the waist down and full facial paralysis as well. He was diagnosed with a daze after receiving his first shot of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine last spring and spent 67 days in hospital. Now the federal government has validated his vaccine-related injury with a successful claim for compensation, making him among the first in Canada to be approved for the benefit. I'd rather not be in that club in a heartbeat. It's, it's nice to have some recognition and there's vindication. The vaccine injury support program was established more than a year ago to offer financial support for people like white men. The vaccine injury support program website has not been updated recently by the federal government, but it does show the number of claims submitted and approved in the first six months of the program. Between June 1st, 2021 and November 30th, there were 400 claims submitted. Less than five of those were approved by a medical review board. It's indicative of our persistence with the program and you know, every week or every two weeks, phoning, emailing, what's happening? Do you have all the paperwork you need? While Whiteman won't go into details as to how much he's receiving, he said the maximum lump sum payout is $284,000, an amount he did not qualify for. He's also eligible for $90,000 a year for loss of income. And while the former realtor is relieved to be getting compensation, it's less than the amount he was making before the injury. Everyone has a, a lifestyle that they're used to or have budget towards, you know, especially with kids and whatnot, and, and so that's going to be something that we're going to have to kind of figure out where to go from there. Whiteman doesn't know if and when he will work again. For now, he's focusing on his recovery, going to rehab twice a week and celebrating the small victories. That, that shows how much that, that man had to fight to get his claim through the system. It shows how few claims are being responded to. And uh, we see from Alex's piece just the sort of huge numbers of vaccine-damaged people that we're dealing with, uh, many of whom will never see a penny, of course, because they're not damaged enough uh, for the government compensation scheme. And this, of course, um, uh, reminds us very much of the uh, harsh reality of vaccine adverse effects, an interview that Brian did with a lady called Nicola, who's... Uh, husband's condition was very similar, but perhaps more severe uh, than the, than the uh, gentleman we saw there. Uh, that was, of course, Brian, uh, the reason that uh, the UK column is no longer on YouTube. Yes, that, that was uh, extraordinary because we put out a very measured and, and truthful testimony from Nicola about her husband who suffered paralysis in his legs, later was paralyzed, as I understand, from the neck down. And I have to say, we do not know what the final outcome was. Uh, but um, that uh, audio clip went out on the UK Collins channel and subsequently it was shut down. That channel was shut down by YouTube because of that clip. Uh, approximately a month or five weeks later, the Daily Mail ran the same story about the, the, the same gentleman uh, with comments from his wife. And of course, that was allowed to stand. So uh, blatant discrimination 
So uh, we were well, malinformation. Well, pardon? We were malinformation in that case. Well, whatever they wanted to uh, label us, <laughs> uh, uh, us as. But the important thing is we were truthfully reporting um, vaccine adverse reactions and uh, we were censored because of it. Take, a, yes, take well, us we on, putting, Yes, we were putting two and two in together and we were making four. This is not what's happening in Australia. Where doctors are baffled. Uh, they're baffled by sudden adult death syndrome in healthy young people. Um, the, they're saying it's an umbrella term describing uh, unexpected deaths in young people. It's a mysterious syndrome, and it's left doctors in Australia searching for more answers. Uh, doctors in Melbourne's Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute are going to create a SADS registry, which they're going to road across the country to gain more information. Um, and they quote here one of the doctors, Dr. Parat said that, quote, the majority of these SADS events, 90% occur outside hospital. The person doesn't make it. So it's actually ambulance staff and forensics caring for the bulk of these patients. Uh, she added, I, I think even doctors underestimate uh, SADS. We only see 10% who survive and make it to hospital. We only see the tip of the iceberg. If someone has a heart attack, you do an autopsy, you might see a big clot. That's a positive finding, but when someone's had one of these SADS events, the heart is pristine. It's really hard to know what to do. Um, and uh, Brian, I looked at that uh, article very carefully. There was not a single mention of vaccine and uh, vaccine harm or vaccine adverse reactions in the article, but they'd left the comments on, and you better believe there was comments about vaccine damage. Many comments. The public know what's happening, even if the doctors in Melbourne don't. Well, David, my response to that is speaking to some people who suffered vaccine adverse reactions. Uh, when I'm speaking to them recently, one of the things they said is when they'd spoken to people in uh, national media, they're talking about newspapers principally, uh, some of the journalists were happy to admit that we simply can't, we can't get any, any uh, content through on the subject of adverse reactions. So there's some form of censorship which is operating what through the editorial boards of uh, major pa papers here in UK. And we see the same thing, I think, in, in Europe and countries overseas as well. Yes, yeah, so and the final, final item here on this subject, um, we've, we see many of these cases where young people suddenly, uh, and for no apparent reason, um, uh, drop dead. Here we have one from Scotland. University trip tragedy. Exemplary Scots student dies suddenly in his sleep whilst on a canoeing hospital in France. Um, Oliver Vaux, 20, passed away on May the 26th. He's a third year physics student at Andrews University, was on a canoeing holiday in the Alps. He'd recently become the canoe club's captain for the year to come. He died in his sleep after spending the day out in the river. Um, uh, Oliver of Burnham, Perthshire, survived by his mother, Gail, father, Mike, and sister, Elise. A service of celebration of his life will take place on Friday the 17th of June in Burnham Arts Centre. Um, we don't know what his vaccine status was. We don't know if there's, going, if there's been an autopsy. We don't know anything on this. But there are so many of these cases, it's crying out for a proper, a thorough investigation and some honesty as to what the causes are. Okay, David, thank you for that. Alex, you've got a little bit more to add on the 
medical theme for Gibraltar here, I think. I have. First of all, Mark Crispin Miller is the man to go to uh, because he blogs as many sudden deaths as he can find from obituaries around the world. But on to Gibraltar, Britain's, uh, one of Britain's last few overseas territories. There's St Bernard's Hospital, the uh, main hospital, which as you can see is just on the peninsula between the, the rock proper and the Spanish border. And the Gibraltar Chronicle reports that the accident in the emergency department at St Bernard's is at breaking point. Uh, we're told that, uh, this is a couple of weeks ago now, uh, that the, 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 the uh, Gibraltar Social Democrats, uh, so it's a political party that's reported this, have received reports of serious concerns being expressed by medics there. And yet Gibraltar is one of the most jabbed up places on the planet, Brian. It's got effectively a 100% jab rate. Um, back in the West Midlands in Britain itself, the Patient Safety Learning Hub is one of many outlets, but as they're more medically specific, I took this one. They're covering remarks by the West Ambulance, uh, West Midlands uh, Ambulance uh, Trusts, uh, well, he's, he's a effectively a spokesman for them, uh, about the uh, Titanic moment, uh, you know, in the sense of the sinking of the Titanic, uh, which may uh, occur soon by August. Uh, it's the nursing director, I beg your pardon, of the West Midlands Ambulance Trust who's talking about that. And the original interview was given to the uh, HSJ, which is uh, a, behind a paywall, a trade journal for medics. And uh, he's talking about, uh, Mark Doherty is the name, the, the West Midlands Ambulance Service uh, man, saying that patients are dying every day from avoidable causes caused by ambulance delays and that he couldn't understand why NHS England and the Care Quality Commission were not all over the issue. He speaks of handover delays, and uh, the local newspaper, formerly the Birmingham Mail, but now Birmingham Live with a Love Ukraine heart, uh, has covered this as well because it's local to them, uh, talking about the total collapse predicted. So Mark Doherty is talking about an exact date in mid-August, the 17th of August, the day when it will all fail. He says it's a mathematical certainty. But um, he goes on, that there is a large number of medically fit patients blocking beds, which he says is a criminal thing to be allowed to happen because he's got teenagers dying on the street from things that if, he, if his crews were able to respond to, they could be saved. Uh, monetary the details are then described. Fortunately, uh, sorry, just before we get to that, ITV is reporting that West Midlands ambulances are waiting up to 35,000 hours a month to hand over to patients. They too are picking up on Mark Doherty's remarks and they pick up on the fact that he had already told a meeting of councillors in one of the counties his trust serves, Shropshire, that he'd given them this date and that they would be losing a third of ambulance resource by that date, hence his mathematical certainty that the sort of service will fall over at that point and, quote, we won't get an ambulance to anybody. So the local politicians do know this. Now, fortunately, Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent, has pulled her thoughts together on this under the heading, the ambulance crisis, colon, how much of it is ambulance related. She has already given an interview on this to uh, Jesse Zurowell on the Perspectives show on today's news talk radio, tntradio.live. She's done three episodes. It's becoming a weekly fixture now talking to Jesse and the latter of them was largely about the ambulance crisis. She writes there about people dying in ambulances, waiting for ambulances, crews constantly being kept off the road because they're take waiting hours before they can hand over to A&E doctors, that's emergency room doctors. Um, she's also, Debbie's talking about the social care waiting list, which is keeping people in hospitals who could be discharged to care. And she's also talking about the odd categorization of ambulance uh, responses, particularly for people suffering strokes who are no longer category one. Uh, but, but the excuse given is they need a specialist stroke unit sent to them, and that might take two or three times as long as dispatching a regular blue light call. 
she goes on to look at the extra layers of problems that there are private uh, ambulances uh, such as this company she identifies, Folk UK Ambulance Services, trading as the NHS, using the badge of the NHS. And uh, a leading cancer specialist hospital has said that this has resulted in chaos. Um, she writes in the conclusion that there are many other factors outside the ambulance service uh, contributing to the uh, long waits and the, uh, the unacceptable outcomes of this. Um, leading on from that regarding COVID, at the end of this medical section, as it were, um, Debbie, or this is just in passing, Debbie has spotted, and this, this accompanies the article quite well, though it's not embedded in it, that she, she mentions the point in general this, uh, that the Freemasons are increasingly publicising that they are supporting the ambulance trusts with road and air ambulances. This particular shot has been sent in from the Derbyshire area. Uh, but Reuters is now covering uh, that a, a circuit judge, so a federal judge in uh, the United States, um, has ruled that it was perfectly all right for an employee to be uh, to be fired for not having got a COVID jab. This was a bankruptcy judge because the lawsuit was taken over the consequences to the former employee after being after after having been fired. Circuit Judge Michael Chagaris uh, has had his opinion now released uh, from the Third uh, Circuit. This was something that doesn't usually happen: a judicial misconduct case because the sacked employee wanted to say that the original judge had uh, caused misconduct by uh, allowing the employer to get away with it. That original judge hasn't been named in the appeal ruling, uh, but she pleaded a religious exemption from COVID, was told no. The first judge said, quite right, there was no, no uh, reason for this. The original ruling is there for those who want to find it if they want to search for the words on screen. Uh, it is uh, February 22nd, 2022 as a filing, but more recently publicized. And there we are. Uh, the ruling itself says there's no evidence of improper bias or an otherwise discriminatory motive on the part of the judge who's being complained about. This undue hardship is the, the issue here for those interested in law. It's a very hard bar to cross uh, because you could basically you, you, you can say almost anything is acceptable for an employer. Uh, there's, there's almost nothing um, that they can be required to do to accommodate a religious exemption uh, because the, the company will say wherever they are in the Western world, oh, we can't accommodate that employee's objection because it would cause us undue hardship. So that's the state of play with uh, the legal uh, situation in America. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. My, excuse me, my comment on the, the ambulance situation is this is created, created chaos. This is not, cannot possibly be the, uh, the situation that the NHS um, just cannot run an ambulance service anymore. The ambulance service has largely been privatised to one side of the NHS. Um, but the chaos, the confusion, the breakdown, this is a pattern. Oh, it's absolutely. got to be. It's got to be deliberate. Absolutely. And as yeah. with the breakdown in policing and, and education, there are favoured private companies waiting in the wings uh, on a non-level playing field, aren't they? A corporatist or, 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 or pseudo-fascist setup. they're waiting to pick up the pieces. Indeed. Well, I've got to say we are out for time, but uh, let's end with a few uh, memes which uh, many people are using these days in order to get messages, the truth and facts out. And I think the first one here is is yours, David. Where did you find this one? Yeah, so this is a, an example of uh, left-wing politics. So the politicians asking the crowd in favour, who's in favour of banning guns to save children? And there's a forest of hands going up. And then he says, and who's in favour of banning abortion to save children? And there's not a hand in sight. 
And that's a fight that we'll be talking about later because it's coming very much to the fore in Scotland uh, because we're going to be banning um, free speech and the right to protest in order to uh, shore up the uh, pro-abortion lobby who no longer have any arguments. Indeed. And when you say not a single hand went up, uh, I had a very interesting conversation with a doctor of psychology yesterday evening who was explaining um, what, how he believes people's uh, minds and opinions are being controlled. And uh, we will be showing an excerpt of that conversation in the next few days. But it was a fascinating subject. And I think, uh, Alex, you'd picked up on uh, a couple. So just take yes. us through these. Out of Boston, Massachusetts, one of the US East Coast's uh, go-to people for mainstream media think pieces, uh, someone has put on the record that on the 9th of September 2021, he tweeted, enough is enough, make vaccines mandatory. And he hashtagged it Thursday thoughts. And on the 14th of May 2022, he, he uh, with the uh, Supreme Court's uh, Roe versus Wade coming to the fore, he tweeted, the only person who should have control over your personal medical decisions is you, not politicians, you. And he hashtagged that, bans off our bodies and Roe versus Wade. Uh, just in passing as well, some German humour uh, regarding what the uh, vaccine cards will look like when we have uh, monkeypox vaccinations uh, man made mandatory in countries like Germany. And uh, it's uh, a, the stamp for the seal of the vaccine provider is a Chiquita Bananas um, sticker off a bunch of bananas. And in the right-hand column, the directions for usage are read, lick me, lick me. In other words, if you lick a banana, you are, unduly, you are duly uh, immunised. Uh, one more from Bob Moran, uh, an excellent cartoonist that everyone should be watching and following on Telegram and Twitter. Uh, he came up with this wonderful solution to the world's current ills. And people will notice that President Xi and President Putin are included in his list of people that he wouldn't like to have much to do with anymore, together with all the uh, global public-private partnership and Western um, uh, rulers of nations. So uh, I think that's, that's a fair enough uh, comment. He, he said, you know, uh, the, we've had enough of the lot of them. Indeed. And do you want to end on this uh, oh, yes. final one? This was uh, from a couple of weeks ago and is more monkeypox related. But here is the ascent of man. If you believe in the uh, uh, the classic theory of evolution, not everyone does. But uh, here we are. Monkey becomes man. And then when he's fully uh, upright and walking uh, and, and, and muscle toned, he then gets COVID uh, injections into his biceps and a mask on and a, and a Ukrainian flag to wave. And he ends up going back to his... Uh, um, what's the proper word? Simeon state is his, his monkey-like state. Uh, Reddit, by the way, uh, on its uh, Ask Reddit thread has been asking about this too. Um, what is a conspiracy theory you actually believe in? Uh, this was some, a, a shot which people really liked because all the responses in a particular, at a particular moment had been deleted as, <laughs> as, as uh, too hot to handle. <laughs> so there we are, conspiracy theories censored from beginning to end. And uh, Sparkman, uh, this is a, a month old, but still interesting, I think, uh, tweeted a month ago that monkeypox is pronounced with the K silent. My final and finally, tweeted out by Benny Johnson, but spotted by others, originally Italian, I believe, but I think it's a Ukrainian journalist. Um, she's posing there with a, a rifle. And of course, she's got the butt above her soul, shoulder. The entire stock is off her arm and she's got the scope in her eye. And he's entitled that How Journalists fire guns. And, and I do hope she keeps her dentures after she's well, fired. Well, can we just say if people don't understand what happens in that picture, she ends up with the telescopic scope in her eye yes. is what happens. So that's a bit of an unfortunate one. 
Well, we need to end there. We're going to say thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners for joining us today. Thank you. Including our Essex viewers, whom we love. I thought you had better humour than to be offended in the chat box. Oh, well, we take enough jokes here in Devon, so I don't see why we shouldn't share it around a little bit with Essex. We'll move on to other counties in due course, but don't take it too serious. We love you all. And uh, big thank you to you, Casey Joe, also to David and your good self, Alex, for joining me here in the UK Column studio. Uh, we will say goodbye. We will be back for extra time in a few minutes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.